This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. I got up early this morning and uh, earlier than usual and decided might as well get up and do some things and get a few things done. And uh, one of the things I decided to do was eat a bowl of cereal. And since our kids uh, have moved out, you know, grown up, moved out, whereas we used to, you know, one time in our lives, I think, when Nathan was about 14, we were doing about four gallons of milk a week, you know, and, and um, once the kids moved out, we we're down to, it would take us almost a month to drink a gallon of milk. Now we've got two little granddaughters that come over every so often, and I opened a refrigerator to get milk for my cereal, and it wasn't there. So I, I'll run down to 7-Eleven. Fortunately, I just lived a mile from 7-Eleven and grab a gallon of milk. And so got in the truck and went down there. And, and as I turned on the radio and listened to a local station, uh, I heard a commercial that, that, that sounded like this um, on the radio. Uh, this lady said, Christmas should be a time of celebration. I thought, this is good. Radio commercial. Christmas should be a time of celebration. But for many Outer Banks children, there will be no celebration unless you give toys to help those families that are having a hard time this year. And I stopped and thought about it, and I'm all for giving kids toys, and I've kind of volunteered a couple weeks ago with uh, uh, another organization I volunteer with and did the toys for tots, and, and I think that's great. But I thought, is, is, is it the toys? Is that what Christmas is about? Uh, and, and for most of the world, the answer to that question is yes. And for most kids, if they don't have toys underneath the tree, in their minds, they've got nothing to celebrate at Christmas. Uh, our series that we started two Sundays ago, and we skipped last Sunday because we did a celebration for uh, 40 Days of Love last week, but this series on um, Advent Conspiracy, uh, which will be today and the next Sunday, is really designed to make you and me ask ourselves some tough questions about how Christmas is celebrated. Today, I want to go to a very familiar story. You can open your Bible up. I hope you have a Bible there. Open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be there uh, in just a few moments. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in a chair close to you. Um, but we'll be there in a few moments. So just kind of find that spot and just set your notes on top of it, and we'll be there in just a little bit. And from this story, I, I think the Bible illustrates for us today this battle that's going on in our lives for, for loyalty. Uh, every Christian, and, and if you've been a Christian very long, you understand this. Every Christian uh, is like a rope in a tug of war. Have you ever felt that way, that you, you can be pulled in opposite directions? Uh, daily, you're being pulled by opposing forces, and with each pull, you and I have to choose Sometimes God's way or the world's way, we have to choose which, which one we're going to let go of because we're being stretched to the max, and, and it, it's difficult to hang on to both sides. And, and that's spiritually true as, as it is with anything else, with, with Christmas time being a prime example of that pull from two sides. You think for a moment about something Jesus said. You're probably familiar with this statement that Jesus made. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. Think about this for a second. He said, no one can serve two masters, 
The person will hate the one master and love the other, will follow one master and refuse to follow the other. He's giving a picture there of that tug of war. He said that we're in. He says, you can't go two different directions. You can only go one. You cannot serve, he said, both God and worldly riches. When Jesus was born, the king of Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem where, where Bethlehem is located, the king was a man by the name of Herod. They called him Herod the Great. In 37 BC, he was appointed the king of Judea by somebody else that you've probably heard of uh, that you didn't realize was connected with him, a man by the name who was in Rome, a man by the name of Mark Anthony. You know the guy who was in love with Cleopatra, who was the queen of Egypt. Mark Anthony appointed this man the king of Judea. Now Rome, it's part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was so vast, and because they didn't have the technology that we have today, they did not have communications, travel abilities that we have today, to govern an empire that encompassed thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, what the Romans did was, in each region that they conquered, where there were governments, where there were kingdoms, they would appoint a a puppet king to oversee that area, and they would give him the title of king to make him happy and make maybe the people happy. But he reported back to Rome, and and he did what Rome said, and they were good with that. And so that's how they governed that vast kingdom. Herod the Great, who was the king when Jesus was born, his father and grandfather both had been appointed to rule before him as the kings of Judea. So he's the third in line in this family. The problem with, one of the problems with this man and this family was this. They're rulers of, appointed rulers by Rome of Judea, which is, you know, 90% or maybe more populated by Jewish people. Herod and his family were not Jews. They were from Idumea. They were a tribe of of Arab people. So you've got Arabs controlling, ruling over the Jews. And you know how that works, even these days today. That's not a good combination, not a good mix. He was a ruthless man, this Herod. He was a cruel king. He was known to kill his own family off. Anybody that he perceived to be a threat to his rule, uh, he, he would have them done away with. And that included his family, included his brother-in-law, who he said, I'm going to appoint you because he married a Jewish woman, so his brother-in-law was a Jew, so he said, I need to give you in a good position, so I'm going to make you high priest. That's how they had a high priest in those days. Was it was appointed by the king, wasn't given by God, appointed by a king who wasn't even a Jew. So you know what kind of state of mind they were in in, in, in Judaism in this day. So he appointed this fellow's brother-in-law to be the high priest, but he had him assassinated because he thought later he was a threat to his rule. Not only him, because his wife, Mary Amney, who was Jewish, and she was descended from another line of kings appointed by Rome who ruled up in the, I think, in Galilee. She was part of that family. They were Jewish. He ended up killing his own wife, He killed her mother, his mother-in-law. He killed his own two sons who were born from this wife to keep that family from rising up against him and conquering his kingdom. Killed his own wife. You know, some of you guys can understand the mother-in-law thing, but your wife and your kids, you know? The Jews hated him. 
They didn't like him at all. They saw him as being a fraud, sitting upon the throne of David. And they hated him because he was a puppet of the Romans. He played up to the Romans, and, and he, brought, he actually brought Roman temples and the practice of ro- worshiping Roman pagan gods into Judea. And, and, uh, and, and because they disliked him so much, within the, the Jewish population rose up parties and, and, and uh, adversaries and movements to get rid of him. Uh, you've read about in the New Testament and the Gospels, you'll read about a group called the Zealots. And, uh, and they were out to overthrow Herod and overthrow Rome. And there were lots of plots to assassinate this man. But he always, he, he was sly. He, he always managed to escape harm. One of the things he did that really got the ire of the Jewish people up was he, he went into the, the grave, the tomb of, of David. <coughs> and David was their greatest king. I mean, they almost saw him as a god. And, and, and he, he went into David's tomb, David's grave, and robbed it. And the treasures that he took out of David's grave, he sent to Rome. These people, they did not like this guy. In his last years of his reign, his rule was characterized by just lots and lots of conspiracies. He, there was always, he's always hearing of this person, that person, this group, that group that's out to do something to undermine him or to kill him, to have Rome uh, remove him, whatever. And he was always suspicious that his life was in danger. I was watching a show on the History Channel yesterday. They did that, that series on, on uh, the history of the United States. And, they, and, I, and I never knew this about Abraham Lincoln, but they said every death threat letter that he received, he kept. And he had it stored in a file marked assassination. And uh, he always knew because of the, the, what was happening in our country then that he was a marked man. Herod felt the same way, always suspected his life was in danger. When he got old, he had some kind of a disease, <clears throat> don't know what it was, cancer or something, that, that eventually did kill him. But it caused him such great suffering uh, that he did one time that we know of attempt to, to take his own life. But before he died, before the disease killed him, and that's mentioned here in, in when he died in, in Matthew 2, before that happened, uh, he did have a son that he suspected was going to try to get rid of him while he was sick and while he was suffering. So his son named Antipater was, was killed by Herod. So he's killed kids and he's killed wives and, and brothers-in-law and family. Uh, historians, Josephus, who was the great Jewish historian of the first century, gives us a lot of information about Herod and his family. But they are, the historians have tried to piece together this guy's family tree, and it just had a really, really difficult time because within this family of Herod, there was just lots and lots of intermarrying. You, you probably remember the story of John the Baptist, who who rose up against and preached against Herod, who was this guy's son who was king during John the Baptist and Jesus' life. And remember, the problem was that, that John was preaching at him and preaching about him because this king Herod was married to his, or living with his brother's wife kind of a deal. And there was just great immorality in this tangled mess uh, of a family. But as cruel and as hated as Herod was, he was also very successful as a king. He was brilliant. He was very tactful. He was a born leader of men. And like the, uh, like the pharaohs of ancient Egypt and the, and the building projects 
that they had, you know, all the, the, the uh, pyramids and, and the different things that they built in their, their day. Herod was also a great builder, a great engineer. He constructed amphitheaters and he constructed fortresses uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he took the temple that had been, uh, that Solomon built and had been destroyed and he rebuilt that temple and made it larger and greater than it ever was before. In fact, the Roman general Titus who came in 70 AD and, and destroyed the city of Jerusalem was, was said to have lamented. He didn't want to touch the temple because it was such an amazing structure. But he did, and now today the, the Wailing Wall that remains in Jerusalem, you've seen pictures of it if you've never been there, and, and the Jewish people praying at this wall, is the only wall that remains of Herod's temple, the one that he built. In Caesarea, which was a, a city on the seacoast on the Mediterranean, uh, the one thing that Israel lacked uh, as a nation, as a, as a region, was a good seaport. Well, he built, he he formed a harbor where there was not one, a place where the ships could come in. And you think they had none of the machinery that we have today, yet he dug a harbor out of that coastline, and they had a great harbor in Caesarea. And because of all these successes, and because of all this infrastructure that he built, and because of the fortresses, and because of uh, his ability to keep oppressors underhand and keep some peace in the land, he was a favorite of Rome. They loved this guy. They really were impressed with Herod, because he had done such a, so many great things in their eyes. He, he possessed everything needed in the eyes of the Roman government to be a great king. They were impressed with Herod. But when Herod was an old, sickly man, this story in Matthew chapter 2 takes place. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's just five miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, you might know, was the hometown of Israel's greatest king, David. And Jesus was descended from David, both through physically through his mother Mary and legally through his adopted father Joseph. From both sides, Jesus has the right to become the king of the Jews, the heir to David's throne. And you can go back and read those genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Herod was the king of a worldly kingdom during that time that was built on power, that worshiped success and possessions. His kingdom constantly sought because he wanted everything. He wanted it to be great. He wanted to be remembered as such a great king, constantly sought to expand by taking over other kingdoms, by conquering others. And his kingdom was impressive, the things that he built and so forth. It worked on the world's philosophy that you and I exist to gain and to accumulate and to stockpile and to build up as many riches as we possibly can, to have as many things as is possible. It's the the idea that I'm supposed to get all I can and can all I get and then sit on the can and just retain it all and keep it all for me. And that's how Herod lived. That's how his kingdom operated. It was a godless kingdom, however, that used manipulation to advance. In the Bible, we're introduced to Herod here in in Matthew chapter 2 when the the story of the Magi, and we're going to talk about that today and next Sunday. Matthew chapter 2, these wise men, these astronomers from the vicinity of what is today modern-day Iraq is where they came from. They traveled to Judea following a new star, searching for the king of the Jews who had been born. Now, how many of you did the homework assignment I gave you last week? 
all right? And you found out if you did, and you, you studied just a little bit in Matthew chapter 2, where is the story of the wise men? You found out it doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. We don't know that there were three. There might have been two. There might have been five. There might have been ten or more. We, don't, we have no idea. We do know that they gave three gifts. So that's where people have made the assumption. Must have been three, but, you know, my wife and I will together give people a gift. You know, so we don't necessarily give separate gifts. So we don't know how many wise men were. And, and there's no mention of any names. So when you read about their names, that's make-believe. When you read that there were three, that's conjuncture. We really don't know. So I hope you did a little homework. I know some of you did, and you discovered that. Um, so here are these wise men, this magi, these, these group of men that come from the, the Babylonian area, uh, area, here to worship this new king. And, and, and again, and I don't want to rock your boat this morning, but I know this is going to. This story in Matthew 2 does not happen on Christmas Day. This Christmas Day is Luke chapter 2. Matthew 2 happens later. So, guess what? I do in my home several of them. I mean, Gail's a collector of them. We have these manger scenes. And in all these manger scenes, guess who's there? Three wise men. All right, we don't know the three, but guess what? They never showed up at the manger. They didn't come to the barn. They weren't there on Christmas Day. This story happens sometime later. Jesus in this story is about probably a year and a half, maybe two years old when this story takes place. Now, I don't want to ruin you. I don't want you to go home and take your wise men and throw them away, okay? It's not what I'm saying, all right? I don't want you to give them a lecture. You guys weren't there. I want you to take it back to the store, you know. They came in later. I want you to follow me as I read Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. After Jesus was born, there's a clue right there. It didn't happen on Christmas because it doesn't say when Jesus was born. It said after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and in Judea on the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem. They didn't know they were coming. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We're from the east. Again, the Babylon, modern-day Iraq, out that way. That's where we're from. We saw the star. We've come to worship him. Well, King Herod heard this. He was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, the Jewish people, these leaders, and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Their answer, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, this is from the Old Testament, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And they must have told him. We can surmise that from later in the story. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and, it, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, again, it's not a barn, entering a house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, 
and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Uh, please, please keep this in mind too. There is no worship of Mary in this story. I just want to point that out to you. They worship Jesus. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up. Now, he's already had this experience once before when an angel appeared to him and said, here's the deal. Mary's going to have a baby. Baby's not yours. Baby's God's. You call his name Emmanuel. You take care of Mary. So this time when the angel shows up, he's kind of, I've been here, done that. And he listens and he understands the angel speaking to him from God. Get up, take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night. He didn't waste any time. Grab your stuff, let's go. And they escaped to Egypt, and he stayed there until Herod's death, so that it might be spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Now, where did he get that two-year figure? When did that star appear? They must have said about two years ago. So we kill all the children two years and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled through Jeremiah the prophet, was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, was fulfilled. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and Great morning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Here come these magi. We don't know how many, but obviously they've got an entourage with them. They're wealthy men. They're powerful men in the, in the kingdom from which they come, and they've come seeking the new king of the Jews. And with that news that they bring to Herod, he is, the Bible says, deeply disturbed. In their innocence, the Magi go to this palace in Jerusalem where, where anybody would you know, just logically think if there's a new king being born, where are we going to find him? In the palace. He's probably the son of the current king or maybe even a grandson, but that's where he's going to be. He's not. They didn't realize that. So Herod, wanting to know more about this, he gathers around him the scribes and the priests, those who would know the Old Testament scriptures, Because again, he's not Jewish. He doesn't know all this stuff. So he brings them in and he says, you guys got to tell me about this new king. Where is he? Where can I find him? What do the scriptures say? What kind of prophecies are there about him? So they told him. The Old Testament was very specific, by the way, about a number of details about Jesus' birth, including where he would be born in Bethlehem. And that's just five miles away. So Herod wanted to know more. Well, how old is this child? So he asked the Magi for information. You, where, when was it that you first noticed this star? And then he tells them, I want you to report back to me. Go find him, come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him too. My guess is that they probably, they are wise men, they probably found this a bit strange. Wait a second. He doesn't know there's a new king being born? 
So they probably found this a bit strange. So when they had this dream that was given to them by God not to go back, it made sense to them, let's go another way. How does a, how does a king not know that his successor has been born? Well, then God used not only this dream to send them another way home, but he sent an angel to Joseph to get Mary and Jesus out of the country. And so they escaped to Egypt, and they lived there for a while. And Herod, angry because the, the, the magi, the, the wise men, never come back and give him the news, he's really upset about that, and he's in a rage, it's said in the Scripture, that he did not have any more information about where Jesus was born, sent soldiers to Bethlehem and the surrounding area, and they slaughtered any male child under two years old. And that's a horrible event. And that's one of those things we kind of don't focus on, you know, in the Christmas story. We don't think much about, but all these babies were killed. He didn't care about the fact that God was now on earth in human form. As horrible as that was, what Herod had done, that was how Herod did business. That was how he kept his kingdom. That was how he kept his thumb on top of everything. People lived in fear of this man. All he cared about was himself. He did not know God and didn't care about God. If you read the Gospels, and I encourage you to do that, if you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was, all the Gospels were written to specific groups. Of people. Matthew was written specifically to the Jewish people, and in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented by Matthew in this biography as the king of the Jews. It's why he gives the lineage that traces uh, back through uh, Joseph back to David and presents De- uh, Jesus as, as the king of the Jews. And you can't, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you, you can't miss the overarching theme when you get to Jesus preaching. The theme being the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. He talked about it a lot in the gospels. He made it plain in a culture that understood kingdoms as he preached, as he shared in his ministry, Jesus did, that God has a kingdom that you and I can be part of, that we can enter, and that it is a radically different kingdom than the kingdom of Herod. It's a radically different kingdom than the empire of Caesar or any rulership or any system that this world can devise. He preached a lot about that kingdom. Even remember in Matthew chapter 6, where we have the story in the the Sermon on the Mount where the disciple says, you know, we listen to you pray. We wish we could pray like you. Would you teach us how to pray? And one of the things that Jesus taught them in that model prayer was, you pray to God, your kingdom come. Pray for that kingdom, he said. But in Luke chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, he told them this, his disciples. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is for you. But what do you need to do? He says, sell your possessions and give to those in need, and this will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. He said, you know, we get so caught up in this earth, in this kingdom, trying to build up treasure here. He says, what really matters is this other kingdom, my kingdom, that God wants to give you, and he wants you to be investing in treasure for that kingdom, but you can't get treasure up there if you hoard it all for yourself. 
Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus talked so much about the kingdom. John did as well, John the Baptist. Jesus did even more. Talked so much about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he called it. That if there is indeed, and I believe there is a kingdom of God, that that means there must also be a kingdom that is not of God. There's got to be the antithesis. Seek the kingdom of God, he said. Don't have two masters. And in many ways, this kingdom of this fellow Herod represents the kingdom of this world that works in opposition to the kingdom of God. And almost always, Herod's kingdom stands for everything God's kingdom stands against. You know, the world around us is a kingdom like Herod's. Its influence, its power is all around us all the time. And until you get to the place in your life where you come to know Jesus Christ, that kingdom is all that you know. It's all that you live in. It's all that you exist in. It is your worldview. We've become so acclimated to it that if we're not careful, we might not be able even as Christians to distinguish that kingdom from the kingdom of God, that every Christian upon your belief in Jesus Christ, you're born into this new kingdom. And sometimes we have a difficult time separating the two, not because they're distinct, they are distinct, but because of we've lived and adapted to this other kingdom so much. But just because we live in a kingdom that isn't God's, and we do, doesn't mean that we have to bow to that kingdom's king doesn't mean we have to accept that kingdom's values. Now, let me just be very quick to point out, because some people misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not here talking about political systems so much. I'm talking about spiritual things here. I'm not talking about government. I'm not talking about Washington or some government seat. I'm talking about a kingdom that, whose king uh, is spiritual in nature. That kingdom isn't political, it's spiritual. And that kingdom will use anything that it can to compete with God for our worship and for our allegiance. Now, when you trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you have, here's something that happened the moment that you did. You didn't feel this, you didn't know it was happening, but the Bible teaches that when you trusted Jesus as your Savior, God at that very moment gave you dual citizenship. Did you know that? You're already a citizen of this world, a citizen of this kingdom, And God, at that moment, gave you citizenship of this other kingdom, this godly kingdom. Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 3.20, we, however, are citizens of heaven. Citizen of heaven. I'm not there yet. No, but I'm already a citizen. It says it in the, by the way, it doesn't say, we will be citizens of heaven in the sweet by and by. It doesn't say that, does it? Is that what it says? It says we what? Are, which is what tense, English students? Present tense means right now. I'm a citizen of heaven. So if you're a Christian, you have citizenship in heaven as well. But we've decided, excuse me, we have to decide by our choices every day of our lives which kingdom is going to determine my choices and my devotion. I'm being pulled. Which one is going to get my heart today? Which one is going to, am I going to follow today? Because they're both pulling for my devotion. Am I going to do what's accepted by the world but maybe forbidden by Christ? So we're pulled by these two forces that are most often in conflict. They clash often. You parents know what it's like when your son or daughter wants to go somewhere, especially if you have teenagers. And if your children are younger, this day's coming. 
If it hasn't come already. You know, they want to go somewhere with maybe with some of their friends and they want to go and be someplace where you know, ooh, that's not really a healthy environment. That's not somewhere I really want you to go and it's not hang out with that crowd, whatever it might be. And so you say to them as a parent, if you love them, you say to them something like this, you know, sorry, but uh, that's not something somewhere where you can go and, and your life can be lived to please our Lord. It's just not a healthy environment for you. Not something that will be good for you. And you share that with them. And every parent of every teenager has heard this response as the kingdoms are pulling. But mom, but dad, all my friends are going to be there. Everyone's going. If I don't go, I'll be the only one that's not going to be there. What's happening to you, mom and dad? What's happening is you're being pulled by two kingdoms. Your kid's being pulled by two kingdoms, and you've got to make a choice. Is that choice easy? Oh, because none of us want to hear the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth, you know, that follows when you say, sorry, but you're not going to do it. When someone offers you a job and they say, listen, just between you and me, I'm going to pay you under the table so that, so that I don't have to do any payroll taxes, I don't have to pay any benefits, I don't have to do any workman's comp, just going to slip you the cash under the table. What's happening to you then, Christian, is you're feeling the pull of two opposing kingdoms because you know Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know Jesus said, pay the taxes that are due. And somebody's saying, let's just kind of not do that. And you're being pulled. What about the pattern of the world that says at Christmas is all about filling up stockings? Christmas is about lots of presents under the tree, no matter what it costs me. This world's kingdom makes that kind of Christmas almost sound holy, doesn't it? And, and here's what happens to us as we're being pulled. We have sometimes parents, we get this, especially if we maybe grew up and didn't have a lot of things. And we can get this attitude of, well, you know, my kids are going to get all the things I never had because I love them that much. Think about that for a second. When you say that, because I love my kids, they're going to have all the things I never had, what you've just done is you've said love means love equals going in debt. And what you've said is this. I put a price tag on your love. And that's a scary thing. That's not what it's about. And after a few years of that, growing up in that kind of thing, what have we taught our kids? When I was 12 years old, the thing I wanted to do in life, I had several things I wanted to do with my life. And one of them was um, I wanted to be a drummer. I wanted to play drums. And uh, I'm, I'm an incredibly naturally gifted, talented drummer who can't play drums. And um, in my mind anyway, I wanted, I wanted to do that. In fact, I did play drums in high school, in, in school bands and all that. But when I was 12 years old, what do you want for Christmas? Well, there's this kid that lived the next street over from us, and, um, and he had a drum set, set of drums. He had a nice set of drums in his basement, and that's a good place to keep drummers. But they had a nice set of drums, 
And, and, and so I would go over his house, and he'd let me play, and he taught me some things, and I start. And so Christmas time came. I'm 12 years old, seventh grade. What do you want for Christmas? I want a set of drums. That's what I want. Well, back in those days, because you know, I, I asked, how much, how much do those drums cost? And he told me, and, I, and so I had a catalog and looked at some things, and I knew that a, a real set of drums cost minimum, cost about 500 bucks. And I'm talking about the late 1960s. And my dad, you know, God bless him, dad was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps living on that kind of salary. And I wasn't the only child. I mean, there were five of us kids. And I'm asking for something that's way beyond their ability. Well, Christmas morning, got up and went upstairs to where the living room and the tree was. And guess what was there under the tree for me? There was a set of drums for Ricky. You think I was happy? No. You know why I wasn't happy? Because essentially this set of drums that my mom and dad bought was really a kind of a nice toy set of drums. It wasn't the real deal. It was just an imitation That probably cost more than they could afford. But my Christmas was ruined. That my parents would have to borrow money to get me what what I wanted didn't really matter to me. That they tried to get something that they thought would please me, I didn't care about. So I took those drums and took them and put them in my bedroom, but I hardly ever played them. It wasn't what I wanted. And even though at that time in our family we were a relatively new Christian family, my mom had just been a Christian a couple of years, my dad had just come back to the Lord after years away from them, we were a relatively new Christian family. Still in our house, in our family, Christmas was still about making the kids happy. But I wasn't happy. You know why I wasn't happy? Because I had grown up believing Christmas is about me. I had grown up listening to that other kingdom tell me what Christmas was about. You fast forward in Jesus' life as he speaks to Herod. I believe, I believe your notes say John 13, but I think it's actually Luke 13. The story about, and the story about Herod and, and the, Herod is the son of the Herod that was born when Jesus died. And Jesus got word, hey, Herod wants to kill you. But Jesus was not impressed by Herod. Listen to his words. He said, you go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Herod didn't face Jesus. Herod wants to kill you. You just tell Herod, I'm not paying attention to him. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing because God's got a plan for my life. And then the night of his arrest, Jesus met Herod in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 9 tells the story. This is the night Jesus has been arrested. He's being tried. He's gone to Pilate. Pilate finds out Jesus is from Galilee, Nazareth, and says, oh, I don't have to deal with them. I'm down here in Judea. Herod's in charge of Galilee. And Herod happens to be in town. I'm going to send him. I'm going to pass the buck. 
So Pilate, when he heard this, asked if he was a Galilean, finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him, Jesus, to Herod, who also was in Jerusalem during those days. Why was Herod in Jerusalem? Because there was a big party going on, big celebration, big feast called Passover, and he wasn't going to miss that. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. I want to see Jesus. Bring him in here. I want to, maybe he can do some magic stuff for me. What kind of miracle can I, you know, I'd like to, like to see that. So he kept asking Jesus questions, it says in verse 9. He kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. And then you get summoned to the king, you get brought in before the king, and the king asks you questions, and you don't answer him. We call that doing what? He, Jesus, ignored Herod. He wasn't impressed by Herod. He wasn't phased by Herod. He ignored Herod. Why? Because Jesus did not recognize Herod's authority as king of the Jews. He did not recognize his kingdom. Earlier in John chapter 18, verses 36, Jesus told Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the area, he said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. This is not about Caesar and all that. If it were an earthly kingdom, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to accomplish my kingdom by doing worldly things. Different kingdom than Herod had. And they're both present today. The kingdom of Herod's still here. It's the kingdom that operates most of this world. But the kingdom of God is still here too. And it's the kingdom that you and I, who are Christians, are called to live in every single day. But what do I do then, Rick, when those kingdoms clash? When those kingdoms conflict? When I'm being pulled opposite directions as to what I should do in life, what do I do? Let me give you three things this morning and we'll finish. Number one, I can't be persuaded by appearances or perceived power. I can't be persuaded by appearances or perceived power. You think about this. Everything that's on this earth that is man-made is temporary. Our cities, our economic structure, our armies, our nations, our traditions, none of those things are going to transfer with us to heaven, are they? We're leaving it all behind. Nothing's going to go with us, not your home, not your possessions, not any of this that's in everything. It's all left behind. None of it transfers. Why? It's all temporary. So we have to ask God, as citizens of this kingdom of God, to help us see, not with temporary earthly vision, but with eternal vision. Because our nature My nature and yours is to only see what's here and what's now. God wants us to look beyond that. Our nature is to be impressed, all of us. We're this way, to be impressed with wealth, to be impressed with prosperity, to be impressed with power in the things of this earth. So not being persuaded by power and wealth, that's not an easy thing for us. Number two, when kingdoms clash, I may have to go against the flow. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, preached that the kingdom of God began for the Jewish people. 
He said, with repentance. Remember the story as Jesus, before Jesus is baptized, John's out preaching in the wilderness, and his message was what? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is where? At hand. It's here. It's coming. We need to get ready. You need to repent is what he said to them. And repentance means you've got to change your mind about what it takes to gain entrance to that kingdom. They thought we're Jews. We're Abraham's children. We get a free pass because of our bloodline. They thought it was all about things like keeping the rules and the temple sacrifices. And then this man comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews, a leader of the Jewish religion named Nicodemus. And he, and he says, I, I hear you're this great teacher, and I hear these wonderful things about you. And this man who is a leader, a ruler of the Jewish people, Jesus looks at him and says, here's the deal, Nicodemus, you'll never see the kingdom of God unless you have a new birth. He had never heard that before. John said, you've got to change your mind about what it takes to get into the kingdom. Nicodemus, you, got a new, you need a new birth. You've got to start all over again because you're headed in a direction that's away from God's kingdom and you don't even know it. Now, none of us who, who are born in this world are born in this world into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. All of us who are in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, come into a relationship with Christ by faith sometime after we're born. It doesn't, you know, nobody can say, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Nobody has. I've always believed in God. No, you haven't. <laughs> Not until somebody told you about him. And we come in with traditions into, as we come into faith with Christ, whenever that is in your life with me, I was 10, almost 11 years old. But whenever you come into faith with Christ, you come into, into that belief with traditions and with expectations, with habits, with a worldview that may not go along with his kingdom. You remember the story I told about the drums? I was 12 years old. I've been a Christian for two years. But I was still hanging on to the old kingdom's idea of what Christmas is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about me. I'm a kid. Christmas is about me. I didn't get it yet. So as we grow in Christ, he begins to point out those wrong ideas and those patterns and lifestyles. And the Spirit gives us his strength and he gives us his grace to turn around and go different, a different direction. Is that easy? No, it isn't easy. Not for me. Some of you could share how when you became a Christian and God began to change you from the inside out, how you were, there's, some of you have testimonies about this, you were met with opposition from friends and family. And they didn't like the changes that were taking place in you. You were different. Why? Because of the reason you're different, you began living in a different kingdom. And they didn't understand it. But Jesus said that would happen. Jesus said, be ready, you'll lose friendships, be ready. You'll even be rejected by family. And this whole idea that we've been talking about around Christmas season this year about changing from having a materialistic Christmas that's all about spending and all about debt and all about stuff, changing from that to, man, let's focus more on giving ourselves and helping others. For the most of us, that kind of thought is, is a really a drastic turn. And it's not easy. Now, you know, I bet if I took a poll right now this morning, I won't do it, but I bet if I said, 
All right, uh, ask a simple question. Here's the poll. What is Christmas? Most, if not all of us, would answer something like this. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Right, That's, we probably all understand that. We know that in our heads and our hearts, but because of the kingdom around us, we make it about other things. We hear people like, like Brenda did a couple weeks ago in that, that video that she told her story about last year in the Advent Conspiracy, how it changed her way of celebrating Christmas, and, and, and Christmas became more of one of worship and giving and spending less, and we think, that's what it should be all about. But it's not all that easy to change sometimes. So number three, I have to choose which kingdom gets my allegiance. Herod's passion, what happened in the story once he heard the Magi, from the Magi, the Messiah had been born, his passion, his goal began to be, I've got to eliminate whoever he is. I don't think any of us is unaware of the current flow in this country, this society, to not only make Christmas a totally secular event, but with with Santa Claus being the star, but to eliminate the name of Christ from the celebration. Our kids can't sing carols at school. Programs, manger scenes can't be displayed. Employees are told to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And all of that is an evidence of Herod's kingdom's continual march to destroy Christ. So I have to ask myself, which kingdom gets my loyalty And every day that question requires me to make choices about which kingdom's direction will I follow today. I believe, and I'm so excited to be a Christian at Christmas time because it's my belief that nobody has greater cause to celebrate Christmas than us. I think we should have more fun at Christmas time than anybody else in this world because we've taken Christ as Savior. Our partying should be the biggest and the most different because we know Him. It is our Lord's birthday. So let me challenge you, Christian, to celebrate his birthday by worshiping him and doing that, worship him by loving those he would love if he were here among us today. And that starts with your family. But it goes beyond them. Who will you serve? Who will you give to this Christmas? Who will you show Christ's love to? The, The world's kingdom says go with the flow. Don't change anything. You can't. I hope Christ is leading you perhaps to break out of that mold and do something radical that brings worship and praise to your king. Would you pray with me? As your people, Father, perhaps we need to heed the words of your prophet John, who told your people back then who lost their way to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, and Father, we know your kingdom is here. It's, it's alive, and it's, and it's in us right now. Help us, Father, to live in that kingdom, especially at this time of year when we celebrate and worship the birth of your Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you, Lord, for this story. We're sorry about Herod and what a cruel person he was and the things that he did, but Lord, help us to learn a lesson from him that we'll choose the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.